Welcome to the Physician Negotiator Podcast, where no decision is left to chance. With your host, Doc of All Trades. Very good. All right. Today on the Physician Negotiator Podcast, I have Dr. Christopher Urington. Dr. Christopher Urington has a website called Physicians IncomeProtection.com, and he was recently did a guest post on CoreyFawcett.com for financial prescription success. Um, I met Dr. Corey through, uh, I'm sorry, I met Dr. Urington through Corey Fawcett, and uh, I was just so compelled by his content that I had to have him on the show. So, uh, Dr. Urington, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, thank you so much. Now, I read your article on Corey Fawcett's website, and you said it's really generated a ton of interest since you since you did that guest post. Uh, yes, I, I definitely got several hundred uh, new connections electronically, um, and uh, I have uh, been chatting electronically. I do a lot of stuff online through LinkedIn and Facebook uh, with several um, uh, several new doctors. Uh, a lot of them younger attendings and residents. And, you know, the one thing that's unique about your situ- about your website, Physician Income Protection, is that you sell disability insurance. But in, your, in a previous life, you were an anesthesiologist. Is that correct? Correct. I, uh, I practiced anesthesia from uh, 1998 to 2010. Um, uh, October, I'm oh, sorry, October 2009 was my last clinical month. And then I was uh, forced to uh, take disability in January of 2010. And why, why was that? Um, in, in 2009, uh, I began becoming weak, um, and it was more on my left side than my right. And, uh, the, uh, I started, uh, not being able to even lift an IV pack mask ventilation became difficult. Um, I had a lot of shoulder pain, um, went ahead and, uh, had the shoulder taken care of where every, you know, everyone thought that was the issue. And then after uh, surgery, uh, it turned out I had much more of a neurological component. Um, eventually, I saw three neurologists and uh, a peripheral nerve specialist, and I was diagnosed with a left uh, brachial plexopathy uh, stemming from being a high forceps delivery in 1972, and uh, I, I have the resulting uh, brachial plexopathy from that. Uh, I was born with an Herbs uh, and Clumpsy's uh, palsy. But those had resolved by the time I was a year, year and a half old, so completely that, you know, there there was, you know, there was no residual. Um, I was a swimmer. Um, and in fact, my freestyle and backstroke times were among the top in the United States when I was 19 and 20. And, uh, you know, you would never think that I had a physical problem. And yet my body failed me in my upper 30s and I ended up on disability. Um really out of left field. Now, when so, with something with a palsy like that, would have it happened anyway, or was there something about practicing anesthesia that, that led to it? Uh, that's interesting. Um, so the way that uh, my peripheral neurologist explained it was that um, if I had had any more damage at birth, then I probably would have retained the palsy for life, uh, much like the actor Martin Sheen has a palsy of his arm. And, had it recovered very quickly in a month or two, then I would have likely still had a problem, but it wouldn't have showed up till my eighth or ninth decade of life. Um, and you know, when you're, when you're 78 years old and you can't, uh, put your ketchup up on the top shelf, well, then that's, you know, that's a problem you can deal with. 
but mine was just enough injury that I only made it to about my fifth decade of life and then started having symptoms. So, you know, do I think that working 80 hours a week uh, hurt me? Uh, perhaps, but, you know, I was going to end up with weakness on my left-hand side uh, no matter what. I, it, You know, my career may have contributed to it happening earlier in my life than I would have liked, but you know, it, it is it is what it is. Well, I attended an ASA conference several years ago uh, on finance. And one of the, the, the speaker basically had said that uh, everybody in the audience, he said about uh, two in 10 of you would get a disability. And the entire audience was shocked. And uh, I still think there's a lot of people out there that, that don't really understand the odds of them getting disabled in, in their in their career. Well, I, I can certainly speak to that. I um, I have spent the last uh, few years uh, becoming somewhat of an expert on physician disability. Um, I, like a lot of doctors, um, had a, a policy myself, an individual policy, and then I also had a group policy. And um, I had two different experiences with those companies. And in educating myself uh, over the last few years, I found out that the the rate of disability for physicians um, is approximately three in ten over a thirty five year career, and of the thirty percent that get disabled, about half of them are disabled for up to a year, and then um, another portion will be disabled between. Uh, one and seven years, and then a, a smaller portion of that will be permanently disabled from the major duties of their uh, clinical career, like me. Uh, nobody wants a one-handed anesthesiologist. I mean, I can tell you that with 100% certainty that if your left thumb doesn't work and your left hand doesn't grip, uh, you can't be in the operating rooms handling airways. Um, so, you know, it, it is a, the reality is it is a three in 10 chance. Um, while most of those, a majority of them are going to be up to that year. Um, another portion will be one to seven years. And then a smaller majority, a smaller minority will be uh, permanently disabled from your clinical career. And that, um, that is devastating for somebody who's put so much time and effort into their uh, education and their um, experience and skills. Now, it happened to you early in your career. Uh, is there any data that would suggest about what time it would occur in their career? Um, well, uh, obviously, uh, disabilities tend to be age-related. Uh, more of them occur after the age of 55 than before the age of 55. And that makes sense from, from what we know. Uh, practicing medicine is, is hard on the body, but it's also hard on the mind. Um, those that are procedurally based tend to get uh, more physical problems um, than the non-procedurally based physicians, but that's not by enough of a percent that, um, you know, I think that family docs shouldn't worry about getting carpal tunnel because the reality is that the way we practice medicine has changed dramatically over the last 15 years. And the advent of the computer, uh, instead of being a um, occasional interface, it's now an every hour interface. So um, the uh, those cases are slowly climbing up. But uh, the, the, the one disturbing trend in uh, medical professional disabilities is that the number of mental nervous claims uh, has been climbing every year for approximately 10 years. 
And that really is a, a change overall in the uh, nature of disabilities for physicians. And with respect to that change, it sounds like the uh, insurance industry has caught on to that. And they've since then kind of adjusted the way they um, make the policies on, for disability. Correct. Um, well, for, for all group policies, you'll find the limitation on mental nervous conditions to be two years. And uh, for many individual disability insurance policies, those would be the private ones that you go out and, and purchase yourself. Uh, many of them, uh, the, the stock option, the, 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 the baseline chassis option will be two years mental nervous. And then you would have to add on an additional premium if you wanted to have mental nervous conditions covered for the life of the policy. And that's so they've they've made it so that they have reduced their risk. But there are options if you want to price in that uh, possibility for yourself. And in light of the latest data on burnout, that may not be a bad option. Correct. And uh, there are a few of the major carriers that distinguish themselves by offering uh, mental nervous for life. Uh, but they price it accordingly and they change other aspects of the language in the policy uh, to adjust for that risk premium. Um, so, you know, it is it's something they've definitely taken notice of. Um, I will tell you that in getting uh, individual disability insurance, a lot of the carriers are much more uh, cognizant of asking questions that um, direct whether or not a person's uh, mental nervous personality or, or uh, baseline puts them at higher risk of that. So it's not so much in asking, you know, what your physical problems have been. They, they are really attuned to asking, have you ever seen a therapist for any reason ever? Um, you know, and they also look at activity. Um, so that's one thing that, uh, doctors need to be aware of, especially young doctors in residency and medical school. We can all get stressed out in medical school and residency, but as soon as you go see a therapist, you've eliminated your ability to ever be covered for a mental nervous condition by a disability, uh, carrier. Wow. And that really is, uh, that is one of the reasons I push uh, interns um, to get their, uh, their get their individual disability insurance as quickly as they can upon entering uh, a residency, because that is really as young and healthy as they're ever going to be. Wow. Well, and and you know, uh, with respect to the cost of med- of individual disability insurance, it's never been cheaper. Is that right? Uh, it actually has never been cheaper, and it is still very expensive, and it is worth every dollar if you become disabled. Uh, you know, we'd all like to buy that uh, lottery ticket the night before it's $1.6 billion. Precisely. <laughs> um, and just like you'd love to make your first disability premium payment the month before you go on disability, but that's, that's not really how insurance works. Insurance works to pool risk of individuals so that the group itself is safer proceeding through time because there's a known risk. You know, in this case, 30% of the pool of physicians will have some sort of disability at some time. And because they don't all have disability at the same time and their careers are 35 years, you can price in a structure as an insurance carrier to cover the, the, the risk. Um, but 
you know, and, and the more people that participate in it, the lower the insurance cost per individual. The, the problem, though, is it's, um, it's expensive because of the, what it does pay out for somebody. In my, my case, if you get injured 11 years into your career, um, they're going to be paying for 22, 23 years. Right. And that's and, a, that's a, it could add up to like millions of dollars. And it, it can, it can add up to millions of dollars, but it still would not be the same millions and millions of dollars I would have earned as a physician. But the, the idea that you would trust the 30% chance that you get disabled to a group policy that was priced out by executives for the cheapest amount of dollars is not a real smart way to conduct yourself as a physician. Exactly. Um, now, the question with respect to cost. Okay, so sure. Uh, as a rule of thumb, you said uh, I think at one point that's you get you pay four hundred dollars for every ten thousand dollars of coverage. Is that correct? Right. So it, it the the real range is closer to three hundred to five hundred dollars for quality individual disability insurance per ten thousand dollars of coverage, and and I'm pricing that in the middle. So that's not like if you're an absolute premium person, never had a health problem, never done anything to see a doctor except for get your vaccines, um, you know, your pricing is going to be better. If you uh, were, let's say you were an athlete, but you suffered a bunch of injuries playing in the NCAA Division I sport, um, you may not get the premium pricing. And they, there may even be some limitation language in your policy concerning those injuries that you got in athletics. Uh, and that would, of course, push your price up. There is some differential also between the sexes. Um, males tend to not males tend to be less expensive as a as a as a risk category than females um, overall. And so some of the carriers charge females more than males. However, there are still a few states um, that require what's known as unisex pricing. So they basically average out the men and the women and the price you pay is in the middle. So if you're a man in a state with unisex pricing, you can end up paying more for your policy. But if you're a female, you'll end up paying less for your policy. So explain to me how that works then with respect to the price. So if you are, you're, you're going to get $10,000 worth of coverage, right? Is that over the course of a year? So you have to, so if you need a hundred thousand, oh, no, no. <laughs> so how does that work? Uh, Is that per month? Benefits, uh, benefits are all priced in in uh, dollars per month. So, okay, um, ten thousand dollar benefit level would mean that you get paid ten thousand dollars each month. Um, so it's going to be f- uh, roughly three to five hundred times twelve. Then you have to multiply the number of months in a year. Then correct. So you, okay. a, a ten thousand dollar benefit would be one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year. You can purchase, depending on the carrier, up to between 60 and 75% of your salary. If you purchase your uh, disability insurance with pre-tax dollars, in other words, it's some sort of benefit uh, that your group offers and you pay with it pre-tax dollars, you'll actually receive your $10,000 benefit as pre-tax money, which means you'll owe taxes on it. So you'll take home 10,000, but you'll pay 30% in taxes. And so that will be 7,000. Other policies you pay with post-tax dollars, um, and then you'll receive them in post-tax dollars. So that's, 
that also will change the pricing uh, because it's whether or not the uh, company is taking um, you know that tax equation into into uh, part of the um, the pricing of the premiums. So there's there's actually a lot of things that go into the pricing, but it it in in so far as your listeners need to understand, you purchase individual disability insurance with post tax dollars from your own checking account, so that you receive those benefits as post tax dollars, and they do not show up as income. If your group allows you to buy a group benefit with post tax dollars, you definitely want to take advantage of of that. Um, that benefit in, within your group or hospital. Is there ever a situation where you want to do the pre-tax uh, pay for it with pre-tax dollars? Oh, absolutely. If you are, um, well, let's say that you went into medicine because you have medical problems yourself. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the great carriers are not going to offer you um, good policies. You may want to look specifically for groups or hospitals to work for that offer a great group benefit as far as disability insurance goes. And you may not have a choice about it being paid with pre-tax dollars, but you could have a choice with how much you maximize it or whether there's a supplemental policy that you can purchase on top of that. A lot of times those supplemental purchases must be made in pre-tax dollars because that's how they're priced. So, Uh. you know, with each specific physician, depending on their own history, medical history, um, they, there, there are different, um, policies from different carriers that work better for their situation. I see. Um, and with respect to, so, so let's say you have, I mean, obviously you want to be, you want to purchase your, your disability policy as early as possible. And if you're as, as healthy as possible. Yes. So let's say, let's say you start, re- you know, you, you recommend doing it when you're an intern. What if you wait until you're 10 years into your practice and now you've, um, I'm assuming even if you've aged 10 years and nothing's changed in your medical health, it's still going to be more expensive rather than had you purchased it when you were an intern. It is. And it's actually a really easy way to understand that. If you start paying for disability insurance when you're an intern, your premiums are priced based on you paying for 35 years. Into the system, I get it. Correct. If you start at 10 years later, your premiums based on you paying in for only 25 years. And it's the same amount, though, it's, no matter it, what. It, exactly, because you as an individual have a specific risk, and that's pooled with everybody else's risk. So that's one of the reasons disability pricing goes up as, as we age, and it also goes up depending on our own medical conditions. Um, so because that premium has to, be, has to be priced in there. Okay. So in, in your situation, you had a group and a um, – an individual. Yeah. So I, um, I started, um, residency and, uh, we had a financial, um, lecture. And part of that was to steer us towards purchasing individual disability insurance, which I did. Um, I've always been a, a big believer in savings and insurance. Um, I, I don't know whether I learned that from my family or where I learned that exactly, but, um, I, uh, I've always thought that that's what everybody did. Everybody saves 20% and everybody maximally insures everything because that's the best way to be safe and secure financially. So I, I went ahead and bought that individual disability insurance policy uh, as an intern. And then uh, about six months before I graduated, I, um, 
I took my employment contract as an attending and went ahead and, and raised the uh, premium to coincide with the uh, additional income I made as an attending. Um, and then I also, that hospital that I initially worked for offered me uh, an additional 5000 on top of that uh, as a group benefit. So, you know, for my income at the time, I was very well protected. Uh, when I then several years later entered private practice, um, there was a group policy offered with the private practice contract. And I had the choice of either purchasing it with pre-tax or post-tax dollars. And I opt for the post-tax dollars uh, at the time because that just made sense to me. I didn't want to deal with the taxes because I had no idea what the tax code was going to look like for the next 30 years. So that's the situation I was in when I got disabled, was I had one individual disability insurance policy and one group disability insurance policy. Well, you know, what you said was very interesting was that you assumed everybody else did it, but that's that's not the case. Uh, very few people or there's a – I would say the, the majority of people still don't purchase it as income. Yeah, it, it, it's actually declining participation over the last 10 years has been noted by every carrier. Um, the, uh, the truth is uh, back in 1990 to 95, actually two-thirds to 75% of all physicians – had some sort of individual disability insurance. And there are some programs here in Ohio that are now graduating residents and less than 40% of them have an individual disability insurance policy the day they graduate from residency or fellowship. And they don't understand what an amazing amount of harm they are potentially doing to their lives by, uh, by not having secured this while they were in, in uh, residency. Well, and you wrote a really nice article about this. Uh, you, you talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and yes. then you put a, your little spin on it and you, you showed the hierarchy of needs with respect to finance, the bottom level being financial protection. Correct. Um, and as an intern, you have absolutely no income. In fact, you probably have negative income because you're paying off your student loans. But your ability to grow a nest egg is going to take a long time. And so in, in, in your hierarchy, it means you have financial protection at the bottom yeah. and then financial savings as the next level. And that's where you mentioned your, your 20%. And then financial independence, which, uh, which is not really the focus of this topic, but that's the goal is to get to the point where your passive income exceeds your current income which then can lead to your own personal legacy, which would then uh, hopefully give you enough money not only to take care of yourself, but uh, uh, of your loved ones as well. Yeah. I mean, my, my career focus as my second career in life is to work with as many physicians as possible to make sure that they're financially protected and that they have a financial savings plan that puts them on the path to financial independence. Um, too many financial representatives, and, and this is from many companies, they focus on the doctors that are financially independent, that have excess income every month, and they want to invest it for them. And there is not enough time or patience to work with somebody who is $600,000 in the hole and uh, is just graduating and they have really no income or uh, they, they, they haven't done any of the prerequisites. And so, unfortunately, the financial representatives that they do meet um, 
really are biding their time for when those physicians, quote unquote, get their act together. And then in today's world, it doesn't happen because the financial underpinnings, underpinnings that they're taught um, are, are not really in alignment with, with, with what a resident faces today. Uh, our average resident entering residency as an intern is $205,000 in the hole from educational loans. They are then swamped with, in the first three months, um, probably the equivalent of an average person's first two years at a job, any job other than medicine, they're swamped with that amount of data about how to do their job. It's not only the hospital EMRs and human resources and all the other things that have to do with having a real job and income, but they they have a um, they have a focus that is on learning their career, not on learning how to manage their life. And in fact, they 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 are rewarded for managing their career and dealing with patients and working in, inside the system in the hierarchy of residencies of residents. Um, and if they go to spend time on themselves, you know, often. And I don't know why we do this still as physicians, but we kind of um, we discourage our fellow residents from taking the time on themselves uh, when all of them should be. And, and maybe it's human nature. You know, we feel better in misery together. We don't want to see this one person taking time to eat right and sleep right and to exercise every day. And then they they save 20 percent and they drive a, a you know, a three year old Toyota Camry or Honda Accord. Um, and they're doing everything they can to protect themselves and to save for their future selves. And I think sometimes that that is, um, that's, a, that's another stress on residents is, you know, I'm barely hanging on dealing with my patient load and my 80 hours a week, and I don't have time for all this other stuff. And so when I work with doctors, I, I actually address both problems. I do a lot of life coaching on work-life balance because um, part of the problem with with modern medicine is there's there is a tremendous amount of stress. It's leading to burnout, and um, you know if anybody who's read any of the articles, uh, even the the rates of physician suicide um, have slowly been climbing over the last twenty years. Uh, and in fact, the American physician as a profession. We have the highest suicide rate in the world of any profession in any country. And that is that is really a statement as to how stressful it is um, to enter medicine in, in the 2020s here. Uh, and what I've done is I've taken my uh, disability and uh, my uh, experience and education of being a physician. I'm, I'm married to a physician. My younger brother is a physician. I've really had this uh, front row seat to watch medicine change over the last eight years. And I've also experienced the entire system as a patient, which really opened my eyes to a lot of things that are wrong with, with the healthcare system. And how I chose to address it was, well, the basic problem I see is doctors get in way over their heads, eight to 10 years out of medical school and residency, and they've dug this huge hole. And it would be better to not have ever dug the hole in the first place, but that means they need to be taught as an intern or as a medical student. And so that's why I'm putting a lot of the materials that I put out uh, in order to help educate that younger physician so that 
their career um, is is really um, supported underneath by a really strong financial life and financial understanding of keeping themselves healthy, um, both financially and personally. Well, you know, this uh, physician suicide is at, officially at an epidemic level. Um, you know, the most recent story was out of Stanford where they had a, uh, one of their uh, graduating residents, surgical resident, who went out to practice and within six months of practice committed suicide. And, uh, you know, the, the entire city and uh, community mourned for this person because he was very well liked. And so Stanford reactively started their wellness program, which every other medical school now is modeling. Now, part of the problem with that program, in my opinion, this is 100% my opinion, is that they're looking at um, they're looking at ways to promote resilience amongst these these residents and you know they're promoting health and that sort of thing but they're really i think they're failing to see the underlying cause and i think i I applaud what you're doing you want to start early on um, their journey to to not let them get them into that position where they're they get overwhelmed Um, so even you know at other institutions that i've been to they're they're focusing on uh you know eating well and being part of the community but it seems to me there's more that needs to be done um with respect to the infrastructure that's leading these people to be burnt out and to commit suicide in the first place. And, and, you know, that, that leads to the, why would you not be including basic financial literacy and financial health in a wellness program? And and I'll tell you that next to sex itself, finances are about the most taboo subject to discuss between one human and another in American society, especially in medicine. And I was going to say, especially in medicine, because it is, um, there is this assumption left over from the 80s and 90s that physicians make a tremendous amount of money. I have several friends in non-medical fields who way out earn any of my doctor relatives or doctor friends. And it is, uh, it, it, there is a growing parity now between medical and non-medical careers Um and so it's just not true anymore, but publicly there is this perception that if you're a doctor, you're automatically financially successful. That perception leads to an expectation in doctors themselves. That expectation leads to stress and um, residents and interns measuring themselves against this mythical perspective that physicians are financially successful and they look at themselves and say, well, how is that possible? I'm $450,000 in the hole making $48,000 a year. And I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't, there's no, there's no light at the end of my tunnel because I'm in a cave, you know? Oh my God. So there's, there's a basically a disconnect between perception and reality. Absolutely. Society holds you to a certain high level of expectation, which you yourself will never live up to. And so it leads to more stress, more, uh, but you will hold yourself up to that same high level of expectation. Right. right, right. It's a public image and it is very difficult for a doctor to remove themselves from the public doctor image. Um, it, it, and this is, you know, there's some, obviously some psychology and sociology that I am not an expert on going on. And so, you know, I only have a few hundred physician friends and I only have talked to several hundred other physicians. And so my perspective is that it's the same story over and over again. It's the same stresses and, and, and mismatch between perception and expectation and reality. 
And so, you know, again, the way, way to combat that is to say, hey, yes, you're in a pile of debt. The average is 205000 but you can get out of it, okay? This is how you build your triangle to be successful. You've got to protect what you've done because you did something that only a very, very few number of people in the United States did, and that's attend medical school. Then you survived into residency, and you are headed towards being a doctor. Why would you not protect your next 35 years as your first and foremost move to tell yourself, I am valuable. I'm valuable to me now, and I'm valuable to all the me's five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. So why would you not? That's And that's why on my, my pyramid, as you pointed out, my base is this big financial protection. Because if you don't do that, psychologically, you're really undervaluing yourself. And if you psychologically undervalue yourself, it leads to a lot of other stresses. Well, and, and on that note, you do write about financial safety and physician suicide and burnout. Now, with respect to what had happened to you with your uh, group disability policy, that led to a tremendous amount of stress as well. Yeah. So in, in my particular case, um, and, and this you'll find this happens with group carriers all the time. So those of you out there in the audience who think you're totally protected because your hospital or your medical system has given you a group disability plan, um, you are not. Uh, most of your plans are they will sell it to you as an own occupation. And if you look at the language you'll find that the own occupation period is mostly two years in group plans. There are a few out there that are about four years, but that's it. You have a, you have a, a small period where it's own occupation, and after that, the language will shift to any occupation. And it, they do mean any. If you can physically be driven to a toll booth and hand out tickets on a highway, um, that's a job. If you can answer phones, that's a job. Um, if you have your medical knowledge intact and you can review insurance cases, that's a job. And so whether or not you do those jobs is irrelevant. The fact that you have the potential to do any occupation means that your claim will terminate. So a lot of people that think they have disability insurance, if they're disabled at 40, they will get two years of benefits as a doctor and then that's it. They're done. They better learn how to flip burgers very quickly. Right. And so if you think you're stressed out in medicine right now because your hospital changed, uh, you know, electronic uh, medical records three times in the last five years, let me tell you, stressful is going from making, you know, $20,000 a month to making three because you only have a $5,000 group benefit that is pre-tax. So you lose the taxes and then it disappears two years later. That's stressful. That is stressful. But it doesn't have to be that way. For my, my own, what happened in my case was really kind of unique. Um, so the group carriers have been uh, collapsing through mergers and acquisitions um, pretty steadily over the last uh, 30 years. There used to be over 100 carriers, and now it's down to just a couple dozen. For the individual side, there were about 70 or 80 carriers in the 90s. And now there are 12 carriers left, and it might be down to 10 because there are some other mergers going on. And there's really only five or six really superior individual disability uh, insurance carriers that you would want a policy issued uh, from in 2018. The 
the group carriers themselves, uh, what happened was 19 days before my last day of work, um, the carrier got bought out and uh, or sold their book of business would be the industry term in insurance. And I was part of that book of business. And so I got sold and a new policy got issued. But my policy was misconstrued. It was it was miswritten. It, it had errors in it. It had sections missing. Uh, it had sections that were left blank that in big capital words said, use custom wording here. Um, the, unfortunately, when you go on claim, your policy is frozen in time. So for all my colleagues, a year later, all those policy errors got fixed and they got issued a new policy. And that's the other thing about group policies with, with doctors. Your policy is only as good as this year. As soon as it reaches the um, anniversary date, they issue a new policy with new language. Could that language stay the same? Yes. But on a whim, they could change it. And most of us, meaning 99% of us, will never read the new anniversary edition of our disability uh, insurance product through our hospital or, or medical group. So with mine misconstrued, there was a, uh, it was very difficult to determine what would happen to my benefit should I ever even earn a single dollar. And uh, I finally got so frustrated in uh, five or six years later from not, you know, doing gainfully employable uh, work that I took them to federal court. And uh, I learned painfully under ERISA law, which is what uh, insurance companies uh, function under at the federal level, my carrier actually didn't have to answer any of my questions. They didn't have to tell me what happened. And um, that, uh, that put so much stress on me that um, I became very, very, very depressed. And in fact, I started having images of my life without me. So my wife moving on, my kids older, but I was never in the picture anymore. And I had to, I had to seek psychological help. Um, and I'm not afraid to say this, but I, um, and it took me a long time to come to terms with, uh, the phrase suicidal ideation. Um, but I was, I was suicidal, uh, whether I wanted to admit it at the time or not. And I needed help and I got help. I, I ended up being a, a very good patient. Um, I went through a wonderful program. I continued for an entire year uh, with therapy after that. And part of that led to my passion of preventing other doctors from going through what I went through. Um, so, you know, really, there's two parts of my story. I did a lot of things really fundamentally right in my financial life that allowed me to take a huge hit through disability 11 years into my career. And I want to teach that. But at the same time, I also want to teach people, if you really protect yourself properly, then you will be able to focus on your health and getting back to your your life and not spend six years fighting a $170 billion company that really doesn't care about you. So as a fun uh, thought experiment, I sent you my group disability policy. And the funny thing about that was, as I went onto my own HR website, I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, after making about ten phone calls, that actually is that that actually is absolutely the modus operandi because they don't want you to know. Well, it's it's not that they don't want you to know. You can do it as long as you follow all the steps, which you did. 
The reason they don't do it is because it changes every single year. So they can't exactly put a static PDF up because that PDF will change the next year. Um, what was incredible is how little knowledge HR had about it. I had to, you know, people didn't even understand that physicians actually operated under a different policy than the the non-physicians. Yes. And so, so that, you know. So at, at large hospitals, that's actually right. So the way disability insurance works is that uh, depending on your occupation, you're broken into different classes that have different premium structures to them. So, for example, uh, and, and this also has to do with with income. So, you know, non-physicians who are not medical professionals are in kind of one class, and then there'll be another class of uh, medical professionals at, at hospitals or groups that sometimes includes docs and sometimes doesn't. And then normally physicians are their own class, and then in really large groups, you'll, you'll even have an executive class above that because they have a completely different um, salary and compensation structure. So the policy for all of the non-medical professional people will be a baseline two-year policy. Um, it will often be, I, I hate to use the word cheapest, what they do is they control the premium by adjusting the benefits downward in order to maintain the contract with the hospital system. So the insurance carrier might start off with all these things on a platter, but in order to maintain the pricing through the years, they'll take a few things off the menu um, each year on that anniversary date. Physicians, it's the same thing. When you get a lot of physicians together, they'll create a physician group disability product like they have at your, your organization, and the they will take off things on the platter, or if they have to keep them on, they'll raise the price. Um, and that's, uh, that's why it's not there, because it's a moving target. And the reason they don't teach HR about it is it's a moving target. And the reason HR doesn't really care about it is because if you go on claim, you don't deal with HR. You are put into a completely separate uh, uh, organization where you have a, a disability claims manager that has nothing to do with your other organization, and you are strictly dealing with the insurance company then. And so you are and, – and you're even separated from, you know, let's say that there's a representative that uh, talks to all the docs when they're onboarded at your hospital and says you have this group policy and it's from my company and it's wonderful and it's own occupation and all this. That representative can't talk to you if you go on claim. They're not allowed to. The industry forces all claimants into one bucket of communication with an insurance company and all sales into another one. And now, is that, is that because of a contractual obligation that uh, that they signed when they work for the uh, organization? It actually um, it actually has to do with liability. So, if the salesperson has said something that's not true, um, but then they're saying it to the claims person, you could get the carrier could be in a liability mess because the salesperson is a representative of the carrier. So what they do is they separate uh, the humans so that the humans that are on the sales side don't talk to the humans that are on the claims side so that the carrier can broadly um, teach the claimant side to only say these things 
whereas the salespeople often have more latitude to sell a policy. And I can even use your group policy as an example. When you were onboarded, they likely told you it was an own occupation uh, product, which sounds fantastic, right? Because all docs want own occupation. Well, as of today, I had a it was a, a, a mildly heated discussion as to whether uh, from with other members of my department as to whether or not we had ONOC. And certain members were convinced this was a great policy and and all is well in the world. And I said, well, I'm not sure if that's the case. And so and that's when I uh, went ahead and reached out to you. Well, I mean, your policy and, you know, this I, we could have pulled this from 60 different systems across the United States. Your your policy is a it, it, it's good in some some regards. Let me tell you the good things. The good things are it offers fifteen thousand dollars post tax per month as a benefit um, as a maximum, and that would be up to sixty percent of your salary. So if you were making uh you know if you were making five hundred thousand dollars a year, sixty percent would be three hundred thousand. And since 15,000 times 12 is 180,000, that's below 300,000, you would get paid $15,000 a month because you're well below that 60% max. But if you were only making $200,000 a year, then 60% of that is 120,000, your benefit would be reduced to $10,000 a month. Okay? Now, because that money is post-tax, you don't have to really worry about the tax code through time. But I'll tell you, with your policy, you don't have to worry about it anyway because your own occupation period is only 48 months. After 48 months, this policy switches to an any occupation definition, and it is a very, very loose definition of any occupation. If you're able to hand out uh, tickets at a toll booth on a highway, that will count as any occupation. If you can flip burgers one-handed, that will count as any occupation. Uh, If you can review a chart, there'll be lots of jobs available to you. So your insurance company in that 49th month will take a determination from all the doctors you've seen. They will tell you which occupations you can do. And because you can do them, they will then terminate your claim. Wow. So this is not a uh, 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 this is not a policy designed uh, for anybody who experiences a disability that is short of a total catastrophic disability. So if you were a doctor and had a stroke, this policy would be great because it would literally pay you sixty percent up to fifteen thousand a month post tax through the entire occupation period of age sixty five. Um, and that's great if you have a total catastrophic disability for your family to be able to take care of you. But if you have anything short of that, of, of loss of limb or the loss of use of your mind, you really are boxed in to a 48 month benefit period. And that's it. You're going to be off claim at the end of that. They are going to terminate it. Um, and, and the, the sad part about a, a generous product like this one, meaning that it goes up to 15000 is it removes the possibility of a doctor like yourself saying, hey, I don't like being only covered for four years. I'm going to go out and look at a, a great carrier, and I'm going to get an independent disability insurance product for myself. And what you're going to find out is that unless you make substantially 
over $300,000, all of your benefit um, has already been taken up by your group product, so you can't even purchase individual disability insurance. That's the real the real rub in these group policies, and that's where I see a lot of young attendings. They're they're making one hundred and eighty thousand. They're making two hundred, and they've got this great ten thousand dollar a month group benefit that only lasts for two years, but they can't physically apply and and acquire. Uh, individual disability insurance because they already are covered 60% or 70% of their income. So that's one of the reasons that it's so critically important to get your individual disability insurance while you are in residency. Um, I wrote a short article about, you know, uh, I think it was called PGY one and done. But the point was that <clears throat> you want to get your individual disability insurance, your intern year. Uh, and you want to make sure that you maximize that contract with the ability for uh, the um, future increase options so that you can go up to seventeen dollars or $20,000, depending on the carrier. And for 75% of docs out there, that is the only policy they will ever need for their entire career. They got it at the lowest price. They got it from a great carrier. Um, they, they, they have it... Um, available for their entire career, uh, and they can have it increase or decrease with um, the years. So um, then let's say you are in a specialty where you go on from residency to a fellowship, and you go on from that fellowship to another fellowship, and you're looking at an income that might exceed $600,000 coming out because that's the specialty you're in. Well, then what you'll want to do is in that six month, well, that, that last year of training, you will want to look at your disability insurance and you may want to actually purchase a second individual disability insurance policy. And that in the industry is known as stacking. So you'll stack two individual policies on top of each other, and that'll get you up to an industry maximum, depending on the carriers uh, for disability insurance. Then you go join a group and that group insurance product will stack on top of those. And that's really how you maximally cover yourself. So ah, so it has to do with timing then, really, more than anything else. Yes. And so, and even a doctor that's coming on to uh, your uh, organization, within those first 90 days that they become a doctor, they can actually get an individual disability insurance product without the group disability insurance product interfering with their uh, benefit amount. So it's critical, that, but I'm sure you weren't told that when you were onboarded. I'm sure when you joined, they didn't say, hey, this is a group disability product, but it's really good if you're totally disabled, if you stroke out, if your heart doesn't work or your spine fails. <clears throat> but if anything less than that happens to you, and it will to 30% of you, we're going to pay you for four years and then you're on your own. I'm sure. Well, we- you know, it goes back to what uh, the, what we were talking about earlier, though. They change it every year, yes. and if you go if you go based upon what's recommended by your peers, without really getting a you know getting the document which you don't have access to, and then getting a, a you know a third party to give you an actual appraisal, you wouldn't even know. That's right. You would not even know, and that's and that is the sad part because they're not teaching this to interns and residents anymore, and then trying to get in to teach residents and interns, uh, that is a huge struggle through 
hospital administration and anybody who works for a hospital certainly understands how difficult it is to do things in their departments. So for instance, when you want to go speak to a resident group, you have to get your entire talking points and everything through normally the graduate medical education office. Everything has to be approved. And then if you're doing any sort of solicitation in there, that all has to be removed. And so you know, I'm kind of in a unique position in that I have been able to talk with residents um, and some medical students uh, without those restrictions because I teach one-to-one, physician-to-physician, not as a financial representative. Although I have the ability to sell insurance, I really do what I do more for the education um, component than I do for the insurance sales component. And, you know, I could see why the, you know, the graduate medical education uh, committees would want to protect their, their residents. But at the same time, they're kind of hurting them. Well, they, they are. And it's, you know, I would blame them. But when you talk to program directors <clears throat> over the last 20 years, and, and my understanding is you came into medicine right around 2000. So you probably saw the very tail end of the pharmaceutical reps coming in and bringing lunches and giving out pens and Exactly. It's over. Notes. Well, when when that system folded in on itself because they found that physicians uh, were biased towards using those products, they collapsed all of the external activities and they've tried to internalize those uh, in large bureaucratic systems. And, it, and it's not working very well. Um, I know that I'm working with a hospital system right now where they are struggling to create a, a professional development um, didactics and, and, and curriculum for their graduating residents because they have seen over the last five years, their graduating residents are not doing as well as the ones from five years before that. And it's because they simply are not exposed to the other parts of being a human being who also happens to be a physician. Um, and the other thing is obviously the debts have increased uh, substantially over the last five, 10 years. So those, those two components together is, you know, you, you've got a, a debt servitude type component to a graduating resident at the same time, a complete lack of education. And so, you know, when you are a compassionate, intelligent, dedicated, tenacious personality that self-selected to go into medicine and then worked your tail off to get educated far beyond what most people are to then run into a situation where you don't know what the right answer is, uh, is profoundly disappointing to you. So when somebody says, Hey, you should be, you should have an individual disability insurance product, right? And you don't know anything about that. Because you've, you've not been taught anything. And then this, you know, happy salesperson tells you that, hey, if you join Hospital X, we have a group disability product and you're covered. Well, you don't know anything about it. So are you going to start asking questions that you believe might make you look stupid in front of other people? And you mentioned that uh, the previous generations of people who actually had that business acumen are now fading away. So it's not like you're going to have access to a generation of people to, to mentor you on this. Right. And so that, that is another uh, dynamic to physician stress is that our, our older uh, physicians, and I'll say for those 53 and older, if you're listening, 
one of the things that you guys have done is with the in, invention of the electronic medical record, your personal satisfaction and <laughs> has gone down and your stress has gone up practicing medicine. And in, in part of that frustration, um, there is less confidence about mentoring the younger generation, those under 53, and especially those under 40, um, in mentoring them because a lot of them, and, and, you know, these are my contemporaries now in their upper 40s and, and lower 50s, they tell me, they say, Chris, I don't know what medicine looks like five years from now, so I don't have any business telling this young doctor what they should do or shouldn't do. And it, instead of it just applying to medical knowledge and the practice of medicine and the infrastructure of, of, of healthcare, it, it's gone global into this bucket of, I, d I don't teach anything because I don't want to be wrong for these young kids. Which adds then further to their stress. Yes. And that is, that is the, the, the domino effect of, of what's happening. And, you know, technology is wonderful, but the adoption of any new uh, medium by, by humans takes a little bit of time. And some are early adopters, some get it, and then there's public acceptance. But those often take a generation or, or two generations uh, to really become part of the culture. And, and what you've seen in medicine in a half a generation, we have really advanced uh, on, on communications and documentation. But but uh, then taking a giant step back with respect to personal development and well um, no we've taken a giant step back on the quality of that communication and doc right very good so it is um, and I'll, I'll use an example I I have a little bit of law school under my belt and a little bit of business school and one of the things I did uh, when I was practicing was I was an expert witness uh, for for surgery ICU anesthesia and and even pain management which I practiced for about a year. Um, I, uh, I found that when I would look at a case in 2003, four, five, that often um, I was looking at anywhere between three and, and 500 pages of material for an entire week or 10 days hospitalization. Um, that, uh, as recently as uh, 2012, 2013, I reviewed a case from 2013. Um, the same six-day hospitalization had 14,000 pages spit out wow. from the EMR. Wow. Um, I, I can't even tell you how overwhelming that was to see that in one decade, 20 times as much information is produced. And so, you know, that case, I actually took some time and, and looked at it and, you know, 99% of it is duplicated. So it, it, it will say the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I can see doctors filling out pre-filled out notes, just hitting return, 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 return. And they don't realize that it's generating this massive, massive amount of material that is, it's, it's impossible to navigate after the fact, um, I can't imagine what it's like to navigate trying to practice medicine. So there's all those challenges that are going on right now with technology in, in, in the administration and practice of medicine. And at the same time, we've removed this kind of doctor to doctor mentoring about your own life. Um, 
And I think that I think that that's why I have found I think that's why I'm I'm moved to do what I do and to uh, work with the doctors the way I do is because it it's a huge deficit. I have experience and and expertise and I love to teach. I, I love to teach medicine. I, I loved teaching anesthesia residents. Um, that those were that was the highlight of my career was when I got to teach both uh, SRNAs and and uh, medical students and residents. I, I just absolutely love teaching, and so now I found a new thing to teach uh, for, and um, and I'm I find that I'm just as uh, just as uh, emboldened with trying to get everybody to learn everything as I used to be. Great. Well, you know, Chris, and, and I don't see this this uh, medical system getting any better. I'm sure the, the amount of bureaucracy will even increase and physicians' frustrations will continue to evolve. Um, so I really, I, I really loved your message of financial protection. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, there, there's two, I think we have two audiences here right now. I think we have a, an audience of young people who we can give them fair warning on, on what steps they need to take to protect themselves for the duration of their career. And also bear in mind their career may not be 35 years. It might be just 10 years or 15 years. And so you really want to take the steps to make sure that you're protected. And then the second thing I want to talk about is, you know, here you have a couple of mid-career people like myself, for example, you just reviewed my group policy. And what I've done is I've done the reverse stacking. So I have my group policy and then I have a private policy stacked on top of it. So what what advice would you, and that's, and that's pretty much the majority of people that I know. Um, who, who have the situation. So what, what advice would you give? To so that? let's, let's, uh, let's break those into two groups. Let's break it into the, the under uh, 40 crowd, which will be uh, your young attendings and residents right now. You know, if you're in residency, get yourself to an independent uh, insurance broker and get yourself individual disability insurance from a quality carrier, get a quality product Make sure that it has all the future increase options on it so that it will cover a majority of your career. So you get that in place. The, uh, if you're an attending and you're within a system and you're only under a group product, then you need to do a couple of things. You need to, one, find out if it's possible that you can get an individual policy um, for the people who are under your contract who are making less than $250,000, they would be basically boxed out from getting anything. But there are other policies out there that only go up to $5,000. If that's the case, then they can qualify for five or $6,000. Now, they can put future increase options on it, and they can, they can get that gap um, sealed. Once you hit 40, you start to acquire medical conditions. Um, maybe you've been burnt out in the system. Uh, maybe you've gone to therapy. Uh, all of a sudden getting insurance, and I don't know in your particular case whether that was a problem, you're, you're pretty healthy from what I know of you. Sure. Um, so for you, it was just simply, hey, I make this much money. I've got this coverage. Um, how much more can I get? And hopefully when you got your individual disability insurance product, you had some future increase options on there because if you were ever to leave your current job and I don't know, your family decides to move to Florida uh, you go get a job down there. Well, when you change jobs before you're under the new group policy, you would exercise all of your future increase so that you're covered on your individual policy maximally. And then the new group policy would stack on top of that. So ah. what's really important for midlife doctors, those that are 40 to 53 
is if you're going to change jobs, if that's part of the plan in the next couple of years, then you need to look at positioning yourself. Even if you just buy a very small policy, like $1,500 a month, but you have the future increase options so that during the transition from one job to the other job, you can exercise those, those options. That is, uh, that is kind of the only way uh, to, to get that um, in that midlife, um, which is, you know, it's a little bit more of a difficult, uh, especially if you're like a career guy at a system. Um, you know, I don't suggest quitting your job and going to another job for a year and then coming back. Um, but there are docs who have taken sabbaticals to do locums work for six to 12 months. And then they come back and they have their individual policy completely maxed out, uh, which then puts their group on top of it. And they're good for the remainder of their career, say from 53 on to 65 to 70, which is when most of us spend down into retirement. Um, you know, and that brings us to that last group of doctors. If you're listening and you're over 60 years old, um, one of the really, uh, uh, and it's, it's tragic because I, you know, I looked up to a lot of the doctors who are now in that 60 to 70 age group. They were my mentors and they are not all retiring well. And it, it really has very little to do with finances. The, um, a lot of them financially are fine, but they spent so much of themselves in their career that they don't really have anything to look forward in retirement and sitting around for 70 hours a week, not doing anything is unappealing. So one of the things that I've, I've written about limitedly in, in, in small amounts is that if you're going to retire, have a plan and and fade out of medicine. Don't just stop cold turkey. Um, reduce the amount that you work. Maybe transition to a teaching position so that your experience can then be used for the younger guys and, and gals. Um, and leave medicine at the same time you develop new skills and hobbies and interests for yourself after your career. Because chances are you're going to live to 80 or 90. And so um, that, that's, a, that's another part I think that is very stressful is that doctors know there's a doctor shortage. A lot of them are hanging on to their careers. A lot of them are being motivated by the system to work as hard as they can. And they finally get to that point where they have to retire physically and they have nothing to do and they're miserable. Um, and and that's, uh, that's not a good plan at all. Uh, excellent advice. I, you know, breaking it down to the three different generations, and I think you've, you've nailed them very, very well, um, is, is of utmost part. And, but I want to emphasize to, to anyone who might be listening, don't quit your job. No, 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 no. Do not, <laughs> no, do not quit no. your job. Um, you know, and a lot, a lot of docs will talk in the surgical lounges about, um, you know, I, I'm building up another stream of income. I know a couple of surgeons that bought a, uh, a car wash. And then they found out running a car wash is not only expensive, but extremely time consuming. Um, right. I know those guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, something they did. They didn't have a lot of time to devote to this. Um, I've seen I've seen, other, you know, we are we we're a self-selected group of self-motivated people who used to be entrepreneurs who in this this new uh, uh, healthcare care uh, sector, we are much more like employees. 
And, you know, if I could if I could end with some final advice is don't treat yourself like an employee. You know, you are the entrepreneur of your own life. And if you would just take a little bit of time, energy and resources to think about the entrepreneurship of your own life, then the reality of being more of an employee like doctor, uh, it, it just becomes less stressful. Um, if you protect yourself, uh, not only your life uh, and your personal uh, you know, health, just like you protect your finances and you build a, a, a really strong foundation to your pyramid, then let's pay off the debt. Let's save 20% every month of your entire life. And that will lead definitely to financial independence at some point. And then, you know, honestly, from that point on, you you have the best launch that a human life can have. You you put a lot of time and effort into becoming extremely skilled at something. You then use that experience and skill to gather resources, and you brought other people into the fold. You might have grown a family uh, in the intermediate, but you took the time to take care of yourself first. Um, I there's a great little co- uh, not a comic but a picture I like of uh, it's a doctor sitting on an airplane putting the oxygen masks on everybody else first. And that is, that is sometimes what I think we do um, professionally. And I think sometimes we don't, um, we don't attend to ourselves with the same care. Well, Chris, wonderful advice. Um, we, we put so much content into this one podcast. Um, you know, I think we're going to have to break it down uh, maybe into two podcasts because there's such good information here. Um, what, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you if they want to learn more about your writing and, or to get more advice from you? Uh, well, my, my website is, uh, www, uh, all one word, uh, physicians income And, uh, in fact, you can just email me at Chris, C-H-R-I-S at physicians income or you can call me at, uh, 614-738-9911. I, uh, I work with all doctors. I will, um, there's no upfront fee or anything for talking to me. Um, you know, and I try to assess each doctor individually because there really is no, if I could give you a general equation that would fit every doctor, I would, but you really can't do that because, um, as a group, about seven to 10% of us come from families that have had money and wealth and they teach those individuals those skills early in life. But 90% of us are going to finish medical school uh, with a negative balance in our life. And, and we won't have had those skills from our family. And then we all have the potential to do well financially. But it's an uphill battle because we don't have the skill set or the knowledge or the experience. So, you know, that's what I try to fill in that gap. Um, I try to try to teach that from my own experience, but also from a, a lot of education now that I've gathered. And so again, uh, it's www.physiciansincomeprotection.com. And uh, I would be happy to talk to anybody. Great. And uh, just a uh, final note, I will put all this, your your website, um, all your information onto um, my website as well. And additionally, you've written quite a few articles. It's on medium.com. Is that correct? Yes, on medium.com. And uh, I've written some on uh, Doximity. And uh, you mentioned the, the article that uh, Corey Fawcett let, uh, let me do a guest post um, on his uh, website. 
Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm out there online. And if you search for Christopher Yarrington or Dr. For Dr. Christopher Yarrington, you'll come across, uh, a lot of the stuff I've written. Likewise, if you go to my website, uh, thephysiciannegotiator.com, I will have all of uh, Chris's articles. I will have all the links um, and all the information if you uh, would like to, to get a hold of it. So that's it. Chris, I'd like to thank you for joining us. It was an amazing – this is your first podcast, uh, right? This actually is my my inaugural podcast, yes. Unbelievable. Um, I, I would have never guessed that in a million years. I've done years. a lot of speaking, though, um, to groups. Um, a lot of dinners, a lot of resident groups, uh, a lot of two-on-ones, uh, three-on-ones with doctors. Um, so I, I've gone over a lot of this material many times, but I, I did. I really appreciated you. You uh, you were able to to guide and make it succinct here. Um, and uh, anything uh, anything more I can do for you, just reach out. No, no, thank you so much. And you know, I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I think the audience is going to love your voice. I think they're going to love your content and. Uh, uh, maybe we. Uh, I look forward to collaborating you uh, more in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the Physician Negotiator podcast. For show notes and other resources, please visit thephysiciannegotiator.com.